can stay there. I just need to get the other options up. This is trying to get out. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report. I'm Scott Kuhn. Episode 5, Grand Old Party Animals. This week's episode is a connection between the Republican Party and individual defendants charged in the Capitol Insurrection. And I'll also ask whether today's Republican Party has become an insurrectionist party and talk about what that means going forward. But before we get to that, some quick notes on the possibility of a blue-ribbon bipartisan commission. I have from the outset been skeptical about the prospects for such a commission, and it looks like none will be forthcoming, at least from Congress. On May 20th, legislation creating a bipartisan congressional commission to investigate the events of January 6th at the Capitol passed the House of Representatives by a vote of 252 to 175, but the bill died in a cloture vote in the Senate on May 28th. Not a single Republican thought it was important enough to actually explain their vote. Theoretically, a cloture vote is held to end debate, but they didn't have anything to say about it. With the exception of Senator Casty from Louisiana, every Republican from the old Confederacy who was present voted nay. Nine Republicans and two Democrats found some reason to be absent entirely. To my mind, any congressional commission would have been doomed from the start. The media and Congress continually cite the 9-11 Commission as a model, but if it is, it's a very poor model. It was it, the report was issued in 2004, when we'd already been in Iraq on the basis of lies. The co-chairs of the commission had been critical of the commission itself. Um, in fact, there were 28 pages that were redacted that Senator Bob Graham had to fight for years to get the 28 pages, uh, you know, finally issued. And again, what, what the, they do? They showed Saudi involvement uh, with the events of 9-11-2001. So, according to critics, the 9-11 Commission could have found that the Bush administration suspected Saudi involvement from the very beginning, but very much wanted a pretext to invade Iraq, and so invaded Iraq, cooking up flimsy frauds such as the aluminum tubes and the dodgy dossier with allies to justify the invasion of a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. Oftentimes, what these commissions in general actually do is to deflect, to make it look as though something is being done rather than actually doing something. Some nothing's actually being done, just to point a commission. The reports don't arrive in a timely manner, and when they're finally made public, critical sections can simply be classified so that the public doesn't have access to the facts that might be embarrassing to people in power or to our strategic allies. So not a single banker, for example, was imprisoned as a result of the financial crisis inquiry commission report, and the Warren Commission didn't stop conspiracy theories from circulating about the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. Sorry, John F. Kennedy. Now we've got conspiracy theories about the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. in QAnon. It might be even be a mistake on the part of Republicans to try to block this commission. They took the vote to block the establishment of commission in which they would hold half the seats, and they would have the power to block subpoenas. They're clearly being self-serving, but they might be wrong. They might be wrong in doing that. Uh, 
You know, Mitch McConnell's claimed it would be redundant to authorize the commission when there are already investigations ongoing through the Department of Justice and the relevant subcommittees in Congress. He's probably aware that the main thing a bipartisan congressionally authorized commission would do would be to hold televised hearings, and the entire matter would have much greater visibility than any other proceedings, either legal proceedings or subcommittee hearings. Then again, you know, that could also be a mistake on uh, McConnell's part. If you said you don't want a blue-ribbon bipartisan commission, but instead want more hearings and subcommittees, you've invited a potentially endless series of subcommittee hearings that keep the Trumpist insurrection in the news cycle indefinitely. The Committee on House Administration, chaired by the very capable Representative Zoe Lofgren of California, has announced even more hearings, in addition to those already held on the Capitol insurrection, scheduled for June 15th. So, uh, if you go to the Committee on House Administration's homepage on YouTube, which I encourage you to do, you'll find that the most popular video on the Capitol insurrection garnered a mere 2,900 views. Now, I don't know how many subcommittee hearings you watch, but these actually have been some of the most compelling I've ever seen. And yet, they have a minuscule fraction of the number of views that your average viral cat video has. I'll post a link to the majority channel of the Subcommittee on House Administration in the show notes in case you're interested. The other thing that failure to authorize a bipartisan congressional commission could do is to cede the initiative to the executive. Since Republicans have blocked a bipartisan commission, this means that the executive has it within its power to create the definitive inquiry, instead of dueling commission reports, one from Congress, one from the presidency, one authorized by the president. Uh, You would just have a presidential inquiry commission. Now, there's already precedent for, for doing this, right? So you had the inquiry into the Challenger space shuttle disaster, which was authorized by executive order, as was the Warren Commission. Uh, again, to look into the death of President John F. Kennedy. Incredibly, so far, the White House has actually expressed no interest in establishing a commission by executive order. But it could be that they'll change their position on this as time goes on. Uh, Even if they don't look at the culpability of Trump and the insurrection, there's still a compelling rationale to conduct such an investigation even if only to investigate the failure of law enforcement to act in any meaningful way to respond to the compelling intelligence that showed there was danger that violent extremists planned to attack the Capitol on January 6th. I'll continue to update the status of investigations as the question moves ahead, but as it stands today, there's no prospect of anything uh, higher than subcommittee investigations in Congress, little interest expressed by the Biden White House to authorize its own independent commission, and just investigations by the Department of Justice and the relevant subcommittees, which are still ongoing. One final update. I spent quite a bit of time on the kinds of charges which less violent defendants were accused of last week. I know that slightly, you know, over half of the defendants weren't charged with assaulting an officer or dangerous weapons or charges of that nature, but it doesn't mean that they won't be. Going through the charges and the evidence, It seems clear to me that this is one instance where the government may be undercharging defendants. Sometimes in this country, even the most minor physical contact with an officer can result in charges of assaulting a police officer. But that doesn't appear to be what's happening here. There are multiple cases where there's evidence to show that defendants are laying hands on officers, but they've only been charged with disorderly conduct, not assault. 
So uh, don't infer too much from my sample last week of the defendants. Just because they weren't charged with physical violence at the present time doesn't mean that the individual didn't lay hands on officers. It could be that in instances where there's no physical injury, the assistant U.S. attorneys have done some kind of triage for deciding what's serious enough to charge. Because remember, they have to be able to prove these charges in court. Even if they're ultimately going to be resolved through pleas, they're only going to bring cases where they have sufficient evidence to show acts of physical violence. And I'm not sure where they're drawing that line um, precisely, you know, between what's disorderly conduct and what's disruptive and what's assault or impeding or arrest resisting officers. Some of it could be whether defendants appear to have been striking with a weapon or with a fist or merely pushing. One final, final update. Uh, in the case study of Shane Leedon Jenkins, I emphasize that for him and other defendants charged with violence, especially those who have criminal records, as he does, the criminal justice system knows what to do with them. Uh, most of these defendants have been offered some kind of pretrial release, but not Mr. Jenkins. At a bail hearing two weeks ago, last week in May, the judge had, in the case had this to say, quote, he, Jenkins, continues to present a danger in terms of political violence. I don't think the conditions that gave rise to January 6th have faded, unfortunately. There are large swaths of the population that believe the election was stolen. That was Judge Maida. And he was also concerned that uh, Jenkins had social media posts after the January 6th uh, insurrection that indicated that he hadn't really reflected on his actions. Quote, on January 7th, he claims that it was peaceful and that he had wanted to be heard. It clearly wasn't peaceful. I think that's a heightened concern in my mind that Mr. Jenkins is prone to engage in acts of political violence. So, again, Judge Maida noted that Jenkins' social media history indicated that Jenkins hadn't accurately represented the violent nature of his actions. So, at some point, the defendants are going to be faced with a choice. They'll have to say, in court, that they were wrong, and they're going to have to say that they were lying or mistaken when they claim that the election was stolen. The alternative is, they can just do their time. And, you know, you don't have a right to a plea bargain in our system. So, we're going to find out relatively soon how much commitment these people have to the big lie. I'll continue to follow these cases as they progress and new facts become apparent. But now it's time to move on to this week's topic, which is the connection between individual capital insurrection defendants and the Republican Party, its institutions, uh, and elected officials. You might well ask, what difference does it make? What does it matter if there were people who have ties to the world of institutional Republican politics at the Capitol on January 6th? I'm a political scientist. One of the questions that we like to ask about topics is why they matter. Why does this matter? So, on the most basic level, part of the disinformation campaign that's continued since the insurrection is the claim that, despite all evidence to the contrary, this crowd was overwhelmingly comprised of white men in the 30s beyond is somehow actually made up of members of BLM and Antifa. We've already covered one of the main extremist gangs that was central to the riot, the Crowd Boys, and most of them have documented well-established histories in the public record that link them to, not the left, but to the far right and neo-fascist political movements. So, despite Trump's connections to the alt-right, 
people of this kind are still seen and treated as marginal in American political life. That's as opposed to the kind of defendants we're going to talk about today, people who um, are part of institutional Republican politics, part of one of the two main parties in our two-party system. So there have always been extremist groups on the right. That's not new. Um, what's new and dangerous is a prospect that one of our two major political parties is in the process of abandoning electoral politics in favor of political violence. That's new, and this matters because it provides an alarming new institutional context and framework wherein our politics is to be conducted. The risk is that our politics becomes a series of street battles of the sort that prefigured fascism in Weimar Germany, a return to the Hobbesian state of nature. I don't want to turn this podcast into a graduate-level seminar on the study of political violence and political science. As fascinating as that would be, it's beyond our scope, and I don't want to draw up a syllabus or issue assigned readings. That would be a great rabbit hole. Uh, incidentally, this is a, a, an area of political science that's engaged some of the best and most entertaining writers in the discipline, so there's an embarrassment of riches. If I had to winnow it down, if there was a hypothetical social scientist who was involved in the planning of the Capitol insurrection, the one book in this area of literature that I'm absolutely certain that they read or reread in preparation for the attack is Edward Lutwak's 1968 classic, Coup d'etat, a practical handbook. And it's a book that does what it promises to do after the colon. It's a blueprint for overthrowing an existing regime and installing a new government. Even though Lutwak himself has, in the response to the insurrection, correctly called it an insurrection rather than a coup, which is the title of his book, um, nonetheless, the book itself deals with other forms of uh, regime change through violent means. Um, and if you go through it, uh, the blueprint that it lays out, what happened at the Capitol actually ticks a lot of the boxes. But we're not going to go uh, into too much depth on the, the context of the you know, content of the Lutwak book. In coup d'etat, Lutwak introduces a concept of what he calls an insurrectional party, which is what I'd like to talk about in connection between the Republican Party and the events of January 6th. He prefers the term insurrectional party rather than the more common label revolutionary party because such parties can be either the left or the right, and the label revolutionary has most commonly been associated with the left. So here's his definition, quote, such parties may or may not participate in open political life if it exists in our target country. But the primary purpose of insurrectional parties is to destroy the system rather than to work it. Like the Bolshevik party before 1917, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, communist and extreme right-wing parties in many parts of the world, these parties live a semi-legal existence, the cellular organization, an underground mentality, and frequently a paramilitary element. Such parties are characterized by their adherence to a set of definite ideological beliefs, a rigidly centralized organization, and their preoccupation with the use of direct methods to achieve political ends. End quote. And his point in doing this in his book Coup d'etat is to look at the threat that an insurrectional party might pose for his theoretical coup plotters. Um, I think what we're seeing is a little different. I, I don't mean to do a square peg in a round hole situation here, but what happens 
if a mainstream political party renounces electoral politics and becomes an insurrectional party. If you consider Lutwak's description, the Republican Party today is demonstrating a tendency not just for insurrection on a given day, but becoming an insurrectional party. With the exception of only two parts of Lutwak's definition, it increasingly fits the Republican Party, right? First, destroying the system rather than working it. Again, the system of what? The system of determining electoral outcomes by elections. So when you reject electoral outcomes, when you reject electoral politics in the favor of violence, that's what you're doing. You're ending electoral, meaningful electoral politics in the system. Second, maintaining an underground identity. Uh, we see that today. Uh, many of the underground elements in the Republican Party, the sort of the insurrectionist part of the Republican Party, are found online. And last week's episode showed, uh, showed how the Proud Boys were operating in cells to mean operational security. Um, so, pretty similar. And, of course, has a paramilitary element. Again, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, uh, these various groups, you know, these far-right gangs, very much are a paramilitary element that is working in concert now with people in the Republican Party. As a matter of fact, there's overlapping member membership. Christian Secor, for example, uh, is someone who is both working with sort of established Republican groups and also uh, far-right extremist gangs. Adherence to a definite set of ideological beliefs? Okay, that's vague, but I think what Lutwak is getting at is a kind of a rigid orthodoxy, a strong tendency toward rigid orthodoxy, even in the face of facts to the contrary, right? Rather than reasonable politics, a rigid set of orthodox beliefs that the organization adheres to, rather than, you know, a process of, of reasonable and rational debate. And finally, the use of direct methods to achieve political ends. Again, that's as opposed to electoral politics. And that's what the capital insurrection was. That's direct action in, uh, in the face of an election loss. That's what they tried to do, was to storm the capital. Uh, what political parties are supposed to do is they go back to the drawing board, they try to devise a new platform, um, they prepare for the next election, they get ready to knock on doors, they get ready to attract new voters. Um, instead, what it looks like the Republican Party at this point is doing is just saying, no, we're willing to accept election results sometimes when we win, and then if we don't win, we'll resort to political violence. Now, historically, uh, one of the main drawbacks of insurrectional parties, for their members anyway, in terms of achieving their goals, is that they tend to be small. Uh, Lutwak notes this, and uh, he also says that they're often too small to actually achieve their desired ends. So what we're seeing in this connection is particularly alarming. It's the nucleus of an insurrectionist element within the Republican Party itself, not just in the mass, but among party workers, elected officials, and the institutions aligned with the Republican Party. The Republican Party could be evolving so that they can have it both ways. Unlike most insurrectional parties, they can compete for elected office, but unlike political, uh, traditional political parties, they can use direct action and political violence to achieve their ends when they lose. And because they're one of the two main political parties, they're viewed very differently by law enforcement when they engage in these kind of activities. Now, to Lutwak's concept of an insurrectional party, 
I'd like to add an element. We find the political theory, theory of the German 20th century legal uh, theorist Carl Schmitt, who wrote that the essential definition of politics uh, lies in the distinction between friends and enemies. Friends are those with whom we can reach reasonable agreements based on regularized rules and processes. Enemies are those who must be beaten or destroyed. So our internal political opponents don't pose an existential threat to us under normal conditions. But when they do, they become enemies. The underlying current of much of what drives the Republican Party in the United States today is that they've lost sight of this fundamental distinction. Decades of shrill propaganda have created a situation wherein they no longer see uh, the left or you know, even liberals, right, even centrists as opponents against whom election campaigns are to be waged, but rather as enemies against whom actual military campaigns should be waged. I've identified 18 defendants in the Capitol insurrection who have close ties to the Republican Party and its affiliated institutions. Six current Republican elected officials, one former Republican elected official, two former Republican candidates for office, one Trump administration appointee, three relatives of current or former Republican officials, and five people who are closely affiliated with Republican pressure, interest, or political organizing groups. If this group of defendants were a gang, their representation at the Capitol insurrection is about the same as the Oath Keepers, although fewer of them are charged with crimes of violence. Nonetheless, there are a few of them who are actually charged with a lot of different counts. So uh, we have both categories of people who've committed crimes of violence or alleged to have committed crimes of violence and those who are charged uh, with acting, you know, essentially as the, the misguided tourists. So these people are uh, not the same on the whole as the misguided tourists from uh, the last episode because they're people who really ought to have known better. Uh, they're part of the political elite to varying degrees. In this respect, the Capitol insurrection has some affinity with the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000. I'm not the only one who's noticed this, of course. There's been some great reporting on the similarities between the Capitol insurrection and the 2000 election in connection with this. Roger Stone, for example, was at both events. Much like at the Capitol insurrection, the police didn't arrest anybody on the day of the Brooks Brothers riot. Both events were violent attacks designed to stop the counting of votes that would determine the outcome of a presidential election. One of the main differences, oddly enough, is that in 2000, the Brooks Brothers riot in Miami was actually successful in preventing the counting of votes. Many of the well-dressed participants in the Brooks Brothers riot were congressional aides. In the Capitol insurrection, of course, people in Congress were the actual targets, so perhaps not surprising that there weren't many of those or any of those, as far as we know, in the mob. It may have been the crowd, um, but supposedly they would have been working that day. Um, and besides, those people were authorized to have access to the Capitol in any event. Again, in 2000, you had Republican Party operatives storming the Miami-Dade polling headquarters. And in 2021, you had Republican elected officials, their families, and associated political operatives storming the Capitol. That's extraordinary. So who are these 18 people? Most of them have connections to local rather than national Republican politics. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in each case, but 
any one of them, you know, could get their own episode in the future. So first we'll start with current Republican elected officials. You have Suzanne Ayani, a Natick, Massachusetts town meeting representative who is charged with two counts. Coy Griffin, Otero County, New Mexico commissioner, a county commissioner, two counts. Sharon Pineo uh, from the town of Malta, New York Zoning Board of Appeals, who wasn't charged, but handcuffed on the 6th and resigned from her position and uh, maybe charged later, we don't know. Derek Evans, West Virginia House of Delegates, charged with two counts since resigned. Philip Republican Messiah, Sean Grillo, a New York State Committeeman from the 24th District in Queens, who's facing three counts, including obstruction of Congress. Mark Middleton, who's a Republican Party precinct chair of Precinct 14 in Cook County, Texas, who faces seven counts, including assaulting officers. You also have um, a Republican uh, elected official, former Republican elected official, Eric Barber, uh, who was a former Parkersburg, West Virginia city councilman, who's facing four counts. You have uh, some Republican candidates, former Republican candidates, uh, Jody Tagaris, a former Palm Beach County Commission candidate who's facing four counts, and Frank Scavo III, a 2010 Republican nominee for District 22 in the Pennsylvania State Senate, who's also facing four counts. Here we have some relatives of current and former Republican elected officials and candidates. Hunter Allen Kuhn Imke, who is a grandson of a Glendora, California uh, city councilman, who faces four counts, including destruction of government property. Carl Dresch, who is son of the late Stephen Dresch, a one-term member of the Michigan House of Representatives, uh, who's facing five counts. And I won't go into it today. I actually have encountered um, Stephen Dresch before. Uh, if you are someone who's interested in the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, Stephen Dresch is actually uh, the person who wound up um, turning in or finding out about evidence that there was uh, more explosive material on Terry McNichols' farm, Terry Nichols' farm, excuse me, um, and uh, wound up giving that evidence, and uh, Nichols winds up going to prison for even longer. Ryan Scott Zink, son of Jeff Zink, a former candidate for the House of Representatives from the 7th District of Arizona, who's also currently a declared candidate in 2022, and he's facing two counts, including physical violence. One Trump administration appointee, we're going to look at a little bit later, Frederico Klein, who uh, was an official at the U.S. State Department, special assistant in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. He's facing 10 counts. Then there's people who are connected to Republican institutions, Christina Malamon, Vice Chair for Young Republicans of Oregon, who's also very active in the Portland Chamber of Turning Point, sorry, the Portland Chapter of Turning Point USA, uh, and is facing uh, unlawful entry of public property, and is actually um, employing one of Trump's impeachment lawyers as her attorney. Christian Secor, a UCLA student who founded an alt-right campus group, um, who's been active also in Turning Point USA, and worked as an intern for Michelle Malkin, 
a journalist who's really a far-right agitator and author uh, who works for has worked for Fox News and Newsmax, uh, C-Corp is facing 10 counts. Then there's Nicholas Ox, who kind of is hard to categorize because he fits in multiple categories, but I'll put him in here. Um, he's someone who has ties to institutional groups affiliated with the Republican Party and also at one point um, was, a, uh, was a candidate for office. Um, and there's direct overlap here between the alt-right and the world of institutional Republican Party politics. So, um, you know, if you want to see the direction perhaps the Republican Party is turning, if it becomes an insurrectional party, look at Nicholas Ox. Um, he's worked for two years from 2017 to 2019 for the American Conservative Union, uh, which is the group that organizes CPAC annually. He's also worked with Turning Point USA and was vice chairman for the Trump 2016 Hawaii campaign. Um, he's a proud boy uh, and was endorsed by the Hawaii Republican Party for a state representative in 2020. And he faces six counts, including conspiracy. And then there's uh, Jorge Riley, who's the former secretary of the state board of the California Republican Assembly who faces six counts. Finally, uh, Leo Brent Bozell IV. Uh, he's a son of L. Brent Bozell III and the grandson of L. Brent Bozell Jr. He's facing three charges. He's arguably the most significant of these arrests because, uh, not because of anything he's done, but rather because of his family history and the conservative movement. His grandfather was L. Brent Bozell Jr., who was William F. Buckley's best friend at Yale and an extremely significant figure in the conservative movement in the United States from the 1950s onward, well, until his death. He was a senior editor at National Review in its early years, that is to say, again, L. Brent Bozell Jr., and he married William F. Buckley's sister in the mid-1950s. So, uh, for several years, after the founding of National Review, Bozell worked um, at National Review and also was a speechwriter for Senator Barry Goldwater. And he wrote, ghost wrote Barry Goldwater's 1960 book, Conscience of a Conservative, which was a book that helped propel Goldwater to the 1964 presidential run and his nomination for the Republican Party, which, of course, uh, he lost uh, in the general election to... Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. His son is William F. Buckley's nephew, Leo Brent Bozell III, who began his career at the National Conservative Political Action Committee, a political action committee that was most effective in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and incidentally, which included among his founders one Roger Stone. In 1987, Leo Brent Bozell III went on to establish the Media Research Center, or MRC. For over 30 years, the MRC has been funded by donors who are wanting, seeking to prove that there's a liberal bias in the media. Um, they put out a newsletter, they host uh, lots of various events, they still do, and they have a series of satellite organizations that try to get their message out. And uh, much of it just kind of seems to be building up El Brent Bozal III, as a defender of conservatism from the lying liberal media. Uh, the MRC is still very much a going concern. Uh, it operates as a nonprofit, 
and is funded by Robert Mercer and many other donors with an annual budget of $15 million, of which a little less than 500000 goes to Bozell himself in his capacity as a president and a director of many of his organizations. In recent years, the MRC has moved away from the old model, uh, that, which was basically centered on newsletters and press releases. Uh, instead, they've become an organization very much focused on a large presence on social media. For example, the MRC has 1.8 million followers on Facebook and over 200,000 followers on Twitter. All right, so that's two generations, you know, 50-year span, 70-year um, span, really, uh, of, you know, a, a family that's integral to the conservative movement and Republican politics in the United States. I should mention that L. Brent Bozell III is not technically a Republican, right? Um, because he's a head of a 503C, which is supposedly an, an educational organization that is, quote, raising awareness. Um, he doesn't call himself a Republican. He's registered, unaffiliated. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's very much a partisan organization. So it brings us to his son, Leo Brent Bozell IV, who lives in Palmyra, Pennsylvania. So unlike his father, he has a rather small digital footprint. We know his name, uh, his nickname, from the charging documents, Zeker. So, Zeker Bozell. Um, we know he made it onto the floor of the Senate, and that he was identified because he wore a blue sweatshirt that was emblazoned with the name of the school his daughter attends. A tipster identified him from video footage as Coach Zeker, um, and reported that he was the coach of the school's girls' basketball team. But the school subsequently claimed he'd never worked as a coach there and served in no capacity at the school, which may have been somewhat disingenuous. Um, he may, you know, they, they said, that, well, we don't have a sports program, but that could be because they eliminated sports uh, due to the, the pandemic. So the central allegation against Bozell is contained in his complaint affidavit. Quote, based on the timestamps of the C-SPAN video footage, the individual identified as Bozell was in the U.S. Senate chamber from at least 2.46 p.m. through 2.55 p.m. on January 6, 2021. While on the U.S. Senate chamber balcony, the man identified as Bozell moved a camera so that the camera was pointing down to the ground of the balcony area. This was done as protesters began to enter the main floor of the U.S. Senate. By pointing the camera to the ground, the camera was unable to record protesters entering the main floor of the U.S. Senate chamber. Simultaneously, a younger, unidentified male can be seen covering a different camera with a jacket. My review of the C-SPAN video footage indicates that Bozell's movement of a camera, along with the other individual who covered a camera with a jacket, was done in coordination in order to obstruct the view of the cameras recording protesters entering the U.S. Senate chamber. End quote. So, Bozell's father has built a small empire of organizations in D.C. dedicated entirely to criticizing the media, uh, in effect, working the refs. And uh, Elbrant Bozell um, III claims that his outfit coined the term media bias. So, that's why it's pretty interesting that the one thing that Zeker Bozell is seen doing in the Senate chamber is actually moving cameras so that they can't take images 
of the protesters. Part of what's striking here is that Bozell's alleged behavior is far more goal-oriented than that of many of the protesters. According to the time-stamped evidence, at 2.47 p.m., he's moving the cameras in the gallery. And there's photographs of all of this contained in the indictment. At 2.53 p.m., he's on the floor, and he's talking on his phone. And he ends his call um, sometime before 2.54, and he's standing at the front of the chamber. So he was in the chamber for about nine minutes. And during that time, he and the teen boy he is with move cameras so that they won't record useful footage. And then he gets out. Uh, there's footage from ProPublica that shows him leaving the Capitol uh, that's mentioned in the affidavit at 3.07 p.m. And once again, he's speaking on the phone, allegedly, anyway. Um, there's a picture of him doing it. So he's leaving with a group of other insurrectionists, and all the other insurrectionists are kind of whooping it up. There's video footage of this. And Bozell is just having a quiet phone call. It, it, it's kind of striking. They all whoop and shout. They see someone's video videoing them as they come out. And um, he just wants them quietly. So, I mean, there's, a, there's kind of a, a stark contrast between his behavior and the behavior of the other people in the crowd uh, in the video footage. He also seems, in the, when he's in the balcony, a little bit camera shy. Some of the other people are whooping it up, uh, mugging for the person who is taking video uh, footage. And um, Bozell, Zeker, is just He's moving the camera, moves off a little bit, and appears to not want, uh, or perhaps I'm you know, reading too much into it, but isn't as interested in acting out for the camera as many of the other protesters. So, again, this is someone whose father and grandfather have been at the very center of the American conservative movement for around about 70 years. And his father, uh, L. Brent Bozell III particularly, has created a multi-million dollar 503C, a group of 503Cs, directed entirely at media criticism. And the one thing Zeker Bozell does when he's in the Senate is to move the cameras. Even if that wasn't his intention when he was on the way into the building, it very much works as a metaphor, right? Um, but also, would be very curious to know who Zeker Bozell was actually speaking to on that phone call. Um, the final thing I'd like to address on the subject of Zeker is another difference between him and many other defendants. Most of them have taken down their social media accounts, uh, which, of course, Zeker has done, if, assuming he had them. But most of the defendants don't have a family business that has millions of followers. And some of the defendants have made comments to the media or on various GoFundMe pa pages funding their legal defense. Um, it's kind of strange. There's this whole universe of, of Bozell family outfits that have had absolutely nothing to say. They've been engaging in completely disciplined radio silence, which is remarkable because the Bozells have opinions on absolutely everything. There's nothing in the media that the media can do that won't attract some kind of comment from them. But on this, absolutely nothing. Um, Elbrant Bozell III has thousands of tweets, but nothing mentioning Zeker or his activities at the Capitol. Zeker's brother, David Bozell, who heads up another uh, Bozell outfit called ForAmerica.org, has also failed to mention Zeker. 
Um, and there's nothing about Zeker on the MRC homepage or in any of their accounts. It's, it's absolutely Stalinistic how this man has disappeared. He has been disappeared. It's as though he never existed. Um, yeah, so one thing that, you know, I mean, Zeker, <laughs> Zeker, sorry. Um, actually, Elbrant Bozell uh, did go on Fox uh, Business uh, to talk about the insurrection. Um, and it's unknown if he knew that his son was actually there, but uh, he does uh, speak on Fox Business for five minutes. And at the very end, uh, he, you know, and of course he's, he's pointing his finger at, at others. Uh, at the very end, he has this to say. By the way, by the way, listen, I hope there is a thorough, there is a thorough investigation. My guess is when all this is over, you're going to find that there were bad guys on the other side who were also participating. It's just a hunch. So just a hunch. He has a hunch that there are bad guys on the other side who were, quote, also participating. So he's requesting a thorough investigation. And, uh, yeah, his son was there, right? And what he really wants to say is that there are people on the other side who were also there. Um, you know, at this point, we can go down the list, right? There are hundreds of people with documented connections to the far right, the alt-right, the institutional right, every kind of right. There are elected officials, their children, candidates, and even a Trump administration appointee, and even Elbrant Bozell III's own son. But nonetheless, sure. He wants to blame the left. We don't know what the MRA or MRC has to say on the subject today because they, unlike many of the defendants, uh, apparently are following legal device. Um, for decades, Elbrant Bozell III has blasted out propaganda that focuses on words and images and semantics, looking for evidence of unfairness or slanting. But his own son goes down to the Capitol, allegedly slants the cameras down, and suddenly. He has absolutely nothing to say. One of the documented Republican defendants who's been more frank on this subject is Christian Secor. I was a bit hesitant to include Secor, again, because in addition to his ties to the Republican Party, he also has ties to the alt-right. But at this point, it's difficult to know where to draw the line these days. And I think it's illustrative uh, of this, you know, transition that I'm suggesting, wherein the Republican Party is becoming what Lutwak would call an insurrectional party. So his connections to the Institutional Republican Party are more marginal than some of these people, right? Um, he's a former member of the Bruin Republicans, at, uh, which is basically the Bruin College Republicans, the uh, UCLA chapter of Young Republicans. He was eventually expelled from the Bruin Republicans, but not before establishing alt-right white nationalist campus organization. He is openly a white supremacist, a self-professed fascist, and has also worked with Turning Point USA, a group that straddles the line between being a mainstream Republican organization and part of the alt-right. He is, at least, uh, been more forthcoming than uh, Bozell or his family about who perpetrated the Capitol insurrection. In two deleted tweets from January 7th, he says, quote, they were Trump supporters stop spreading false information in response to claims that were still circulating, well, they still are, but uh, that, you know, it was BLM and Antifa. And, quote, 
It was Trump supporters, you losers, and you should be proud. One day accomplished more for conservatism than the, in, than the last 30 years. And all the normie have to say is denial. You boomers will kill our republic. Since that time, Secor has purged his Twitter accounts of these and 1,231 other tweets, um, but not before they were archived. He currently faces 10 counts, so uh, he's 22 years old, and we'll uh, continue to follow him as he progresses. Another defendant I'd like to touch on, uh, who's very much linked to the Republican Party, is also from California, uh, Jorge Riley. Riley is from the Sacramento area, and he's the former Secretary of the State Board of the California Republican Assembly, uh, which is a Republican grassroots political organization. Um, now, that's what it's said in news reports. Um, Riley himself, uh, well, he's posted a, a link to a picture of a plaque that uh, says that he has worked for the uh, worked with the California um, Republican Assembly for eleven years, <clears throat> excuse me, and including six years uh, as president. So um, it, it may be that uh, someone is wrong here. Um, unlike many defendants, Riley has actually left his Facebook page up. So uh, I looked at what he still has up. I don't know if his attorneys will ever get him to take it down. But after he was released on bail, he posted a new profile picture, and someone had asked if he'd been working out in jail, to which he replied, quote, There aren't weights in jail. I was sleeping 16 hours a day with my only entertainment being starving and eating cat food sandwiches and dog food, end quote. Um, he also posted a picture of himself with the mother of Ashley Babbitt standing outside the Capitol building in Sacramento. Um... He also left his YouTube channel up and, uh, you know, has, has talked to people, in, you know, in the media, uh, including one very quick interview where Riley uh, had this to say. I may or may not have rubbed my butt on Nasty Pelosi's desk. So uh, he's saying on camera that he may or may not have rubbed his butt on Nancy Pelosi's desk. So, again, I thought, you know, this is a, wow, they, they've got a long career in Republican activism, um, but he's, you know, very much the kind of person who will break into your office, uh, allegedly, um, you know, well, you heard what he said, right? He apparently rubbed his butt on the desk of Nancy Pelosi, who is, of course, a Speaker of the House and third in line to the presidency. Just yesterday, uh, June 9th, um, about two days ago, uh, he actually uploaded another video. Um, he went to a rally uh, that was in honor of Ashley Babbitt, who's also from California, um, who is the woman who was killed inside the Capitol when she attempted to uh, break through the glass and uh, you know go to the other side and uh, where there were members of Congress, and she was shot in the neck by a Capitol Police officer. And uh, he spoke at this, this rally. Uh, again, he's, he's been arrested. You know, he's been federally charged and is now, uh, you know, he's out. Uh, he's not subject to pretrial detention, but um, he's still awaiting uh, the judicial process, and yet he's speaking publicly 
about the events of January 6th. So a quick listen there. Again, uh, he's introduced as George Riley, um, spelled with a J, not sure which way uh, Mr. Riley actually pronounces it. So, um, and that makes sense. In the media accounts, he's described as the corresponding, as a secretary of the California state-level Republican Assembly. But um, again, apparently for six years, uh, he was the president of the Sacramento chapter. So, sorry about the confusion there. Um, so a little bit more dignified, right? Not talking about um, his his uh, his rear end and Nancy Pelosi's desk, um, but nonetheless, probably not great advice uh, to go on YouTube and talk about what you may or may not have done. I mean, he essentially admitted, right, that you know he he, he stormed the Capitol. So as he says, he's facing six charges, and it's probably right to suspect his attorney would advise against uploading the video. Um, I do wonder how long it will be there. So I'm not going to go through all the Republican Party linked defendants in great detail, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention one more in more detail. Frederico Klein, the Trump appointee at the State Department, uh, who faces a 10 count indictment. The day before yesterday, according to police uh, press reports, Klein was offered a plea deal, which is somewhat unexpected. As I'd mentioned last week, I thought plea deals would be offered sooner in some of the less serious cases. So this could be a sign that the government believes the client may have evidence that might be useful to the government. According to the press reports, uh, the offer that was put forward by the government was judged by a client's attorney to not be, quote, reasonable. And we don't have any idea what was on the table. But clients expect, you know, he's facing 10 charges, including assaulting an officer on capital grounds. Uh, which is a felony charge that could carry up to 10 years. He's using a riot shield, which counts as a dangerous weapon, so that can be enhanced all the way up to 10 years. Um, there's video of Klein fighting with police at the Capitol. So I don't know what his attorney would consider reasonable, uh, because it's it's not as if the government has a weak case here. And uh, they're, you know, not probably not interested in... Um, going easy on someone who has a top-level security clearance and yet stormed the Capitol, which, of course, is where, you know, Congress is. And those are the people who, you know, in effect, um, sign his paychecks, right? Those are the people who authorize uh, the budgets of executive branch departments. So it's also come out recently that Klein himself 
has a long history of minor criminal offenses dating back to the 1990s. Um, and it's a bit strange because he was granted a top levels, uh, top secret level security clearance during the Trump administration. And it's unusual for someone who has this long history of drug and alcohol related offenses to be granted top secret level clearance. But somehow that was possible for Klein. Um, incredibly, he also recently violated the conditions of his release from pretrial detention. His attorneys asked for and got a curfew for him. They said, okay, you can go home, but you have to be home at a certain point in time, uh, and you're also going to have to be subject to GPS monitoring. But on May 29th, he violated his curfew. Again, this is a curfew his own attorneys had requested uh, in order to get him out of pretrial det detention. And the reason that he gave was that he was too drunk to get home on time. So this is a defendant whose rap sheet includes offenses related to drugs and alcohol, but somehow abstaining from drugs and alcohol was not a condition of his release. This actually, abstaining from drugs and alcohol is a condition of uh, release for many defendants. So um, with someone with a rap sheet that includes offenses related to drugs and alcohol, it is very strange that that wasn't a condition of his release. Uh, here's a quote from uh, the judge in the case, um, Judge Bates, who I'll talk about in a moment. Quote, what seems to have, occur have occurred is Mr. Klein did something that is wholly inconsistent with the conditions that he is under. He committed a violation, and it's a serious violation, because he put himself in the position of not being able to comply with the conditions he himself requested. So, in quote, uh, Klein himself was initially denied bail, and was then granted bail by Judge Bates. He's subject to home detention, curfew, and GPS monitoring, violated his own terms, and yet it appears there's no consequences. The judge basically wagged his finger at him and said, this is your last second chance. Um, and again, this is a defendant who's facing 10 counts, including felonies. Now, the judge who issued that ruling is Judge John D. Bates, who was appointed in, De uh, in December 20, 2001 by George W. Bush, and he is a senior judge on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. That is one of the most important courts in the country. Uh, this is a judge who has a long laundry list of extremely important decisions, some of which have been in politically significant cases. Um, and yet, you know, he's ruled in favor of what one might call the Republican position in any number of uh, but he's also ruled against Republican administrations. Most recently, a very important decision uh, that overturned what the Trump administration had sought to do in 2018 when they tried to overturn DACA, um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, right? Uh, that was a case of widely, uh, you know, you, you, there was a lot of media coverage about that. And uh, basically, uh, after uh, Judge Beach's decision, uh, Trump admission administration wasn't able to move forward, and DACA is still the law of the land. Um, nonetheless, I mean, this seems like a really strange decision on Judge Bates' part. First to grant bail, and then um, to uh, allow him to have conditions that don't include abstaining from drugs and alcohol, and then not to revoke uh, once he's violated his own terms and conditions. So the Klein case is certainly worth watching as it moves forward. All right, I'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago when Republican candidates up and down the ballot were claiming that as a matter of principle, 
the United States should fight wars to create democracy abroad. On January 6th, 2021, we saw a party that was no longer committed to democracy at home. Stop the steel Trumpism as a movement will destroy meaningful electoral politics in America if left unchecked. If a political party is willing to accept the results when they win, it's illegitimate and in bad faith for them to decry the results when they lose. If there really was a vast left-wing conspiracy that determined the outcomes of elections in the United States, the Senate would not be 50-50. Democrats wouldn't have a narrow eight-seat majority in the House of Representatives, and Republicans wouldn't control more state legislatures than they have at any point in U.S. history. The events of January 6th showed to the world that the Republican Party in the United States is in danger of becoming an insurrectionist party with a rigid orthodoxy that defies facts, a paramilitary system of gangs and militias, and even elected officials who are willing to undermine the electoral process that put them into office. The line between elites and masses is blurred, as even elected party members buy into their own propaganda. Even now, uh, we have hundreds of Republicans, including elected officials and party activists, facing federal charges for the Capitol insurrection. And there are still many dead-enders who are promulgating the big lie that Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election was a result of election fraud. Unless that changes, the situation is probably going to get much, much worse, and political violence could become an ever more regular feature of domestic politics in the United States. Politics is only possible among friends, among people who agree that disputes are to be adjudicated by the rule of law instead of processes and procedures rather than violence. If one political party decides that the other is not merely a political opponent, but rather an enemy to be destroyed, then you're going to see more political violence. Next week, I'll return to one of the themes that I outlined in the first episode, the impunity of white mobs. I'll examine the role of white supremacy and ethno-nationalism in the events of January 6th, and work to understand how these events are situated in a context wherein white mobs have been historically free to commit violence with impunity. Until then, please uh, recommend the podcast to your friends. Please rate and subscribe.